Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in James chapter 4. I'm going to do verses 1 through 10. I'm going to call this section's warning, this section Warnings Against Worldliness. Our context is this. In the last six verses of James chapter 3, James talked about heavenly wisdom which came from above. Now we're going to look at, we're going to shift our focus from what's above in heaven to what's on earth which is mainly bad stuff that we need to stay away from. So starting with verses 1, 2, and 3 in James chapter 4, we read this. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Now, the first thing we note here is the harsh condemnation that James is, is meeting out here. And you wonder, really, did the early Hebrew Christians that he's writing to, did they murder people? Covet, I can understand, but you fight and you war? Well, yeah, Christians could do that. Actually, murdering people, I have trouble with that. Now, it's going to show up in another verse here, a controversy over whether James is talking to non-believers when he says, draw near to God. Is it talking about is he, is he speaking to non-believers who need to get saved, or is he talking to Christians who need to quit fighting? Well, all I can say is that all through this book, he's writing to brothers. I'm going to quote several verses later on where James appeals to brothers. So we're going to assume that James is talking to brothers here. Now, some people have speculated the wars that James is warning against here is fights between nations. I don't think so. I think he's talking about wars between Christians. That's a little bit highfalutin rhetoric there, kind of a big word to describe a dispute in a church, but he could be speaking with abandon, metaphorically, if you will. Not only that, he says, don't don't these wars and fights come from cravings that are at war within you, war within you? So you have internal wars and they break out in, in external wars. So again, we're assuming that it's, I'm assuming that it's talking about fights between Christians. Now, Adam Clark and Jameson Foster and Brown disagree with, with me on that. They say it claims that re, they say that James is referring to the Jewish and Roman battles preceding A.D. 70. If you've done a thorough study of the Olivet Discourse from the Orthodox Preterist viewpoint, you will know all from Josephus about those wars. The war for the year of four emperors, for example, in 68 and 69, when the Roman Empire almost fell apart, and then, of course, the Jewish war itself. In eighty sixty six to eighty seventy, all kinds of wars and fights that are going on. I don't believe that. I don't think that's what James is talking about. Well, here's what Adam Clark says: "Quote the Jews, under pretense of defending their religion and procuring that liberty to which they believe themselves entitled, made various insurrections in Judea against the Romans, which occasioned much bloodshed and misery to their nation. The factions also into which the Jews were split had violent contentions among themselves, in which they massacred and plundered each other." In the provinces, likewise, the Jews became very turbulent, particularly in Alexandria and different other parts of Egypt, Assyria, and other places, where they made war against the heathens, killing many and being massacred in their turn. They were led to these outrages by the opinion that they were bound by their law to extirpate idolatry and to kill all those who would not become proselytes to Judaism. Well, that's where nice and all that's true, but James, I don't think James is referring to that. He's referring to Christian Jews, is he not, brothers? John Gill says the wars are theological debates. I don't think so. Most Christians don't have theological, well, they have theological debates, but most of the ba battles in churches and the wars in churches over the color of the carpet and other such weighty matters. 
Gill suggests the wars and fights could refer to lawsuits brought by rich members against the poor before heathen magistrates. Maybe, but I don't think so. John Gill sums it all up by says these wars are bustling, strifes, contentions, and quarrels. Whatever. Bad business. James says that these wars and fights the Hebrew Christians were getting involved with in, involved in came from the cravings that were, were within them. Don't they come from the cravings that are, are at war within you? Gill sums that up by saying, wars within create wars without. And that's the truth. Now, I mentioned this fact about James says that his readers were murdering. You murder. And I said, I have trouble believing that's literal. And then I've studied Bible and James and Foster and Brown agree with me on that. They say that murder here is figurative and not liberal. In verse 3, James says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. Now, here's an interesting opinion mentioned by Gill and Clark, and I don't believe it, believe it, but it is interesting. Gill and Clark say that James is referring here to prayers for the conversion of the heathen. We, you ask God for the conversion of the heathen, but you don't get it. And so then you say, okay, you heathen Jews aren't going to believe, so therefore that's a good excuse for me to plunder your goods. Or another motive might be, okay, well, you you won't. You heathen Jews won't convert. Well, now that means that we Christians need to be top dogs now. We need to increase our power and influence. That's Adam Clark's idea. I don't know where they get this idea. I don't think that's what James is talking about. I think he's just talking about the typical Christian life. They're asking for money, and they don't get it because they want to buy a Rolex watch. They want to buy a 747 jet airplane or a big bass boat, etc., etc., or a Lamborghini things like that, selfish desires. Adam Clark agrees with me on that. He says that they ask for what? Then they don't get it. He says they ask, they're ask. they asking for worldly prosperity, that they might spend it on riotous living. And so I say this, they don't have it, so they ask God for material things, and God doesn't give them those material things because of their wrong motives, so then they strive with their brethren looking for more material things. That could be, that could be the connection with asking and don't getting and, and the strife and battles that were mentioned in the first two verses. Now, asking with the wrong motives is bad, but that doesn't mean you don't ask. Verse 3, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. That's not at all meant by James to imply that a Christian shouldn't ask for things. Ask, 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 knock, knock, knock. I mean, you know, the importunate prayer, parables, the importunate friend, the importunate uh, widow before the unjust judge. These parables... Obviously, exhort us to ask God for a lot of things. So we we shouldn't get the wrong idea here. In fact, James himself says in verse five, chapter one. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Now, that's not praying for selfish motives, praying with selfish motives. That's asking God for wisdom. Nothing wrong with that. And God gives to all generously and without criticism, without criticizing, and it will be given to him. That wisdom will be given to the asking Christian. We go now to verses 4 and 5 of James 4. Adulteresses, calling a bunch of Christian Christians, most of whom were men, or at least half of whom were men, he calls them adulteresses in the feminine. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously? Now, Paul is using two metaphors here. First is a marriage metaphor. You can imagine if you have your wife runs off for another man and then your spirit within you yearns jealously for your wife. That's one metaphor. The other is you got your wife, your wife runs out and becomes friends with another man and now all of a sudden now she's your enemy. 
You don't love her anymore. You hate her. So it's kind of a double metaphor here, an adultery metaphor and a friendship and enemy metaphor. Now, when James calls his readers adulteresses, he's talking about spiritual adultery. He's not talking about actual physical adultery. The Jews were married to God by covenant, and the Jews broke that covenant by whoring after idols. Simple as that. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Well, what's the world? That's not the world of nature. As the NIV Study Bible says, it's the world of sinful people in rebellion and alienation from God. As in the world of flesh and the devil. We use that word all the time. I used to think that was a made-up English word, but it's actually in the Scripture here. In several places, actually. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that becomes should be translated this way, shall be resolved to be God's enemy. So you want to be the world's friend, you become, you are resolved to be God's enemy. In other words, you make a conscious decision to hate God and to be his enemy by loving the world. Now, what is the world? Well, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, you know, the same old thing. Worldly people have always been worldly, reading ancient history, drunken parties, sex with whoever you want to, same old, same old greed, luxurious living, ostentatious display, Drunken parties, that kind of stuff. Or political power, maybe, or commercial power. Same old, same old. As soon as you do that, God ain't happy with you anymore. You've become God's enemy. Now, James says in verse 5, Do you think it's without reason? The scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously. jealously. And I just said that is referring to the adultery metaphor that a husband who has his wife run out on him yearns for his wife to come back. And that's... The same thing, if God has a Christian who runs out of the world, God's spirit within him yearns to have that person come back to him. That's easy enough. However, the problem is, is that James says he's quoting scripture. He says, do you think it's without reason? The scripture says this, that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously. And the problem is, it's not clear what scripture he's referring to. Adam Clark says, quote, there is not a critic in Europe who has considered the passage that has not been puzzled with it. Well... Let me give you a bunch of possible options here. The NIV Study Bible says the passage James has in mind is not known. Well, they just give up from the very beginning to find where he's quoting from. Here's a possibility. I've, I've culled together, collected together, culled from different commentaries, different suggestions as to what scripture it is that James is quoting here. Here's one, Genesis 6-3. And the Lord said, My spirit will not rem- remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. So there's the idea of the spirit yearning for mankind that's left God. And so then God says, okay, you leave me, my spirit's going to leave you, and I'll yearn for you, but you're gone. That's kind of a loose, very loose use of the scripture, if that's what James used. Exodus 20, verse 5, you must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to be third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So the word jealous is there in Exodus 25. God's a jealous God, and James says, The scripture says the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously. So perhaps James is making an allusion to Exodus 25. Possibly Deuteronomy 7, 2, James is alluding to. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. That verse would refer to you become friends with the world, you become an enemy of God. That's pretty loose too. Proverbs 21, 10. Does James appeal to this verse, allude to this verse? A wicked person desires evil. He has no consideration for his neighbor. I really, that that's a stretch there. 
Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And that would be the idea of being friends, friendship with the world as enemy with God. Rome, and Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this age or to, the, to this world. And so that's a, sort of the same idea. Galatians 5.17, For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. They are opposed to each other so that you don't know what you want. There's the idea of friendship with the world, hostility towards God. It's like, like the spirit and the flesh fighting each other. Numbers 11.29, But Moses asked him, Are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would place his spirit on them. The idea is that God's spirit yearns jealously for his people because his spirit is within them. Again, that's pretty loose. Now, John Gill says that none of these scriptures satisfy him. And so Gill says that James had no particular scripture in mind. Then if he studied the Bible, says, we don't know. Uh, but John Gill goes even further and says, not only do we not know what James had in mind, but James really didn't have one particular scripture in mind. He's referring to the sense of scripture everywhere. Well, okay, that's kind of loose. The tenor of Scripture, whenever I hear that word tenor, well, he's appealing to the tenor of Scripture. That means that's so loose that anybody can say whatever they want to about it. John Gill says that some people have said that that James is appealing to a book of Scripture now lost. Lost. To which I say, well, doesn't God preserve the Scripture supernaturally? There's a, there's a theological doctrine that says that. And if God allowed Scripture to get lost, he wouldn't be preserving Scripture, would he? So I don't believe that. Adam Clark suggests that James is referring to the spirit and design of the scripture in those various places where it speaks against envying, covetousness, and worldly associations. A general appeal to righteousness that James is making, Clark says. One more possible scripture he's applying is Genesis 8.21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. His inclination is evil from his youth means he's an enemy of God. That's pretty loose. Pretty loose possibility there. There's a couple other verses like that in the Bible that are hard to pinpoint where the quotation is coming from. Like, for example, Ephesians 5.14. Therefore, it is, it is said. It is said where? Somewhere in the Old Testament Scripture. Get up, sleep, and rise from the dead. The Messiah will shine on you. But the problem is nobody can find the verse. So we just have to live with that. Now, this last phrase here, do you think it's without reason? The scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously. That actually has alternative translations. If you look in the Homo Christian Study Bible margin, you'll find three of them. Here's one option. He who calls the spirit to live in us yearns jealously. Okay, there you have the spirit in the Christian yearns jealously. That's the, that's the basic translation of the Homo Christian Study Bible. Spirit lives in us, yearns for us, yearns for the Christian. Here's the second option. The spirit he calls to live in us yearns jealously. Well, the first option is he, God the Father, who calls the spirit to live in us yearns jealously. So the first option is God yearns jealously for us. The second op option is the Holy Spirit yearns for us jealously. The spirit he calls to live in us yearns jealously. Third option is he... God the Father jealously yearns not for the Christian, but for the spirit he made to live in us, which he lived in us, which he made to live in us. So you got God the Father yearning for the Christian, option one. God the Holy Spirit yearning for the Christian, object two. Uh, uh, option three, God the Father yearning for the Holy Spirit. Well, 
I'm not going to get balled up into that. We'll just, we know that God yearns for us and the Holy Spirit yearns for us. He doesn't want us to be friends with the world. And he doesn't want us to be committing spiritual adultery. And by golly, I've seen enough of that lately. These kids growing up, all their lives are Christians, and now they're out there openly trashing Christianity on their little Twitter accounts and their Facebook accounts, acting like they know it all and they know nothing because the fool in his heart says there's no God. How, how smart do you, you see a dog licking up his own vomit and say, Ooh, I'm hungry. I think I'll go eat supper and I'll throw up on the ground and lick it up. That's how stupid apostate Christians are. And they're everywhere these days, including people I've gone to church with. James 4, 6. But he gives greater grace, talking about God the Father. He gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, he, God the Father says, he says in the Scripture, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, what does this mean, God gives greater grace? Here's some options. Gill and Clark say it's greater grace than the world, than the world can give. John Gill suggests this, greater grace, greater grace than one can think or ask for. John Gill has another suggestion. He says it could mean that God gives greater grace under the new covenant compared to the old covenant. Now, all three of those options are perfectly true, and so I'm not going to worry about it. could just say he gives a whole bunch of grace without making the object of the comparison very clear. It doesn't make any difference. The point is, is this grace, abundant grace, abundant grace. Grace to do what? To not be an enemy of God, not to commit spiritual adultery, and not to yield to the... Jewish persecution of the Jewish Christians there right before eighty seventy. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Greater grace, grace to the humble. This idea of giving grace to the humble is also mentioned in First Peter 5, 5. In the same way, you younger men, be subject to the elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that, what, what could be simpler to understand than that? You want less of God. I mean, what, proud people think they don't need God's grace, and God agrees with them. He says, okay, you don't need my grace. I'm not going to give it to you. You're so proud, you think you can handle things on your own. Go right ahead. Try it. See how, see how successful you are. But people that are humble and say, I just don't know, Lord. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I just There's nothing I can do without you, Lord. Watch God bless that person's life. This idea of giving grace to the humble is not only in First Peter 5, verse 5, but it's also in Proverbs 3, 34. I think Peter and James were both quoting Proverbs he mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. Now notice this, that it's that James says in verse 6, Therefore he says, that's God says, God resists the proud. That's actually the scripture saying that Proverbs, to be precise, Proverbs 3.34. It's a direct quote from there. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when he says, Proverbs says, that means that God is speaking through scripture. And Proverbs is speaking the very voice of God. That's for all you liberals who don't think the scripture is inspired by God. Now, this word resist, God resists the proud. Some, one of my commentators, I forgot which one because I didn't note it down, says this word resist means sets himself in battle array against him. So God sets himself to do battle against proud people. Verse 7, James 4, therefore submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Very famous verse. There's other places in the scripture that talk about resisting the devil. We have to do that. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. So that's one way you can resist the devil is by putting on the full armor of God. 1 Peter 5.8 and 9, be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. 
And so these persecutions and sufferings are said to be instigated by the devil, according to Peter, and we should resist the devil. Now the question then becomes is, how do we resist the devil? James doesn't really say in this verse, he just says, well, he doesn't say it explicitly, but he implies. He says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the, the way you resist the devil is by submitting to God. Another way you resist the devil is by being humble. If you go to the context, previous verse, verse 6, James 4, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. You submit to God. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble. And if he gives grace to the humble, that's going to help you resist the devil because now you've got all the grace you need to resist the devil. We need to remember to pull these verses together in context. We drop down to verse 10. Also, we read this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So humility is very much mentioned in this passage in James chapter 4, for first 10 verses, humility. And so therefore, that's why I think that James is saying resist the devil by being humble. And then God will give you all the grace you need to resist the devil. Here's what Adam Clark says about resisting the devil. He who in the terrible name of Jesus opposes even the devil himself is sure to have a speedy and glorious conquest. Hear, hear. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. We move now to verse 8, James chapter 4. James continues, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Now, the big issue here is who is James talking to? Is he talking to unconverted people, or is he talking to converted people? He He calls them sinners. Cleanse your hands, sinners. But someone might object, well, Christians sin too, so they can be called sinners. Now, I've, I like, I've done a teaching a lot of times in churches called sinners or saints. And it's clear Paul, or well, not just Paul, but the New Testament writers most often refer to Christians as saints, not sinners. And the cases where they do refer to Christians as sinners, not only are they few and far between, many times it's those, those passages are misconstrued because they really don't refer to currently believing Christians. Having said that, though, I believe that Paul, that James is talking about Christians who are sinning here. Their nature is not sinners, but they are sinning. That's just my opinion. It's not, but there's a lot of people who hold the opinion that no, he's talking to unsaved people. For example, John Gill says this, well, excuse me, not John Gill, Adam Clark. He says this, what a strange view must he have of the nature of primitive Christianity who can suppose that these words can possibly have been addressed to people professing the gospel of Jesus Christ, who were few in number without wealth or consequence and were persecuted and oppressed by their brethren, the Jews, and by the Romans. We're going to tell these persecuted minority of people, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Well, John Gill counters and says this, no, it's got to be Christians after conversion because it's not possible to draw to God when you're not a Christian because God first draws us and then we respond. Gill's a Calvinist, of course, and he would say that. But then John Gill says something interesting. He says that James is talking to sinners in Zion, quote, former professors, hypocritical persons who speak with a double tongue to men and who draw nigh to God with their mouths but not with their hearts, who halt between two opinions and are unstable in all their ways. Well, now, it sounds like Gil's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Has to be Christians, because you can't draw near to God if you're not a Christian. And then he says, oh, no, they're sinners, they're hypocritical persons, formal professors, but they're not really saved. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, it could be from a human standpoint, we do draw near to God first when we're unsaved. From my point of view, it looks like we're drawing near to God 
And then he draws near to us because we're not aware of the fact that when we're unsaved, God is drawing us first. That's hidden to us. Objectively speaking, God is drawing us near to him before we draw near to God. But subjectively speaking, non-Christians feel like they're drawing near to God, and then they find out that, hey, God has drawn near to me. So therefore, it is possible, at least, that James is talking to unsaved people here. However, in my opinion, I think he's talking to saved people. I feel like it's strange that James would be addressing a letter to non-Christians when he constantly calls his readers brothers. James 2.1, my brothers do not show favoritism. James 5, 7, and 8, therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. James 4.11, don't criticize one another, brothers. And the NIV Study Bible backs me up in their introduction. They say this, the recipients were clearly Christian. All right, so we're going to assume that Paul, James is talking to Christians here. And the first thing he tells them is to cleanse your hands. James, remember, he's very Jewish. He's referring to the Old Testament priest who approached God at the tabernacle. And when they did that, they had to wash their hands, as the NIV Study Bible says. They washed their hands in that bronze laver of the sea, I think the King James calls it, the bronze laver, the bronze basin. This was a symbol of their spiritual cleansing. Psalms 24 mentions about clean hands. That's, by the way, is a legal doctrine. He who comes to court must come to court with clean hands. I think it's talking about coming to a court of equity. Clean hands. If you screwed somebody, don't come into the court looking for justice, basically is what that means. Psalm 24.4 says this, The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not set his mind on what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. And finally, James says, Purify your hearts. That would mean from your spiritual adultery. Quit committing adultery against God by whoring after worldly idols. Verses 9 and 10 of James 4, and we'll finish up this section. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. This is, of course, is referring not to legitimate laughter and joy, but people laughing like at a drunken party or something, and derisive laughter, ribald laughter, foolish and frivolous laughter. You need to start repenting of your sins, James says. You need to change to mourning, your laughter to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. To be miserable and mourn and weep, the NIV Study Bible says you can succinctly summarize that by saying, repent. <laughs> and I've already said this, the laughter is carnal laughter, not joyful laughter. Must be changed to mourning. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the same sentiment that was issued by Jesus in Matthew 23:12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility. Don't leave home without it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished now with James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. In our next audio, we'll take up James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17, finish off the chapter. That will be about speaking evil of a brother and boasting about tomorrow, two sort of unrelated subjects. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.